Well, why don't we pray? Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us. You are a faithful God. You are an awesome God. And we're no longer slaves to fear, sin, death, hell, or even ourselves, because you have made us free in Christ. And the ones you make free are free indeed. And so good, Lord, to be free to come to this place to worship you, to lift our voices before you, to celebrate how awesome you are, to remember your sacrifice, to uh, consider the great and amazing promises you've given us, and also your correction and the rebuke that comes from your word at times and the encouragement and the exhortation. And we just rejoice to be known by you and thankful to gather as one in your name today. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would comprehend what's being said and that it would really minister to our hearts and be fruitful in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could turn your Bibles to Ephesians 6, that's where we'll be today, the first bit. Knowledge impacts our decisions. From a young age, just as an example, you learn probably from experience that falling down hurts and uh, injuries occur. I remember having those skinned knees and hydrogen peroxide and uh, you try to avoid falling. Um, and, but also as a boy, I don't know if girls do this too, but you try to test the limits of how, how high you can jump from something. So you jump from the tree, and you're like, oh, I can do that, and can I jump off the balcony? Well, that hurts a little bit. I need to wear different shoes next time. So you realize, like, my knees and ankles can only take so much. It's fun, but there's also a limit to it, and, and you learn that limit by experience. When I was a kid, commercial skydiving and bungee jumping made a huge rise in popularity. And that involves jumping from heights, which under normal circumstances would be deadly. If, if you want to live, you wouldn't want to jump from those heights, but it uses technology so that you have a, a strong parachute that's able to take you to the ground safely, that bungee around your ankles. Anyone here ever bungee jumped? You know, make sure that I dip in the water before I come up. Like, I want, the, I want the full adrenaline rush. Um, so someone who, who knows jumping from 4,000 meters is deadly is willing to do so when they know they have an experienced instructor and they're wearing the right uh, equipment and they're trained and, and they're willing, they know that it's safe to step out of that plane and plunge all that way and actually have fun. Now, we know that this is not for everyone. Not everyone is it. They know, theoretically, I could skydive. I could probably do that safe. I've seen people celebrating their 90th birthday skydiving. That's not me. That may be what you're thinking. You're like, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Um, so we know that skydiving, bungee jumping, relatively safe for people that are interested in that but it doesn't interest us. We haven't put into practice ourselves. And this can be true in our Christian walk as well, that we have knowledge, but it's remaining theoretical because we haven't actually put it into practice. We know the Bible says something. We know that I'm no longer a slave to fear or I'm no longer a slave to sin, but we haven't, put, we haven't really experienced that ourselves. For instance, we know that God is sovereign over all heaven and earth, uh, that he has all authority, and yet we worry. 
So in that time of worry, are we really believing that God is in control and has rule over everything? Or we know God's omnipresent. Jesus will never leave or forsake us, and yet we can feel lonely and alone, forgotten, like nobody even knows what's going on, not even God in that moment. So it's a little theoretical. As kids, we, some of us saying, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And we believed it. But now as grown-ups, a little thing makes us worry and, and filled with cares, unsettled. If someone's willing to jump out of a plane at 4,000 meters, trusting that, back, that, that parachute and their instructor, how much more a child of God Trust him that he's able to bear us up. We're, we're doing life in tandem with him because he has us and he'll help us. And, it's, and so we can take the leap. We can step out in faith knowing that he's going to support us. He's going to help us. And to move from the theoretical aspect of faith into what I know the Bible says factually into how I live and how I think. Involving relationships. That's what the... Uh, perspective is today. Last week we spoke about in Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 that we're to be filled with the Spirit, that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And it takes being filled with the Spirit to submit to one another in the fear of God, to, for wives to be subject to their husbands, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church sacrificially, and that our relationship with God, it does more than just impact our marriage relationship or close family ties, but parents to children and extended family, employers and, and employees, masters and slaves. And though we don't have in our culture masters and slaves like they did in the Roman times, there's still so many valuable principles um, whether we are subject to authority or in authority, and how to wield that. So Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This is a continuation from what was just spoken about with wives and husbands and now children. Children, even adult dependents, they're to obey their parents because this is right. This is right in the sight of the Lord. This word obey, it's the Greek word that paints a picture of a, of a commanding officer telling his, his uh, soldiers what to do. Like halt, stay here, or it's time to push into battle. And they, would they were under the authority of that commanding officer and they would do so. Colossians 3.20, it says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So it's right, but it's also well-pleasing. It's pleasing to God when a child obeys their parents. And children seek to obey their parents even if they're rough and unkind. How much more should we, as children of God, seek to honor and obey Him um, in everything? Now, children are not to obey their parents as if their parent is God, but 
to do so in the fear of God, knowing that they are a child of God under God's authority. And so whether or not they agree with their parents on a particular, situ- a particular uh, command or um, something that they're, uh, you have to do your chore now, and they're like, I don't feel like doing my chore now. But if you're subject to God, realizing that he has placed that authority in your life, you can obey joyfully as service unto God. Parents, they have the responsibility to teach their children how to obey, to be themselves obedient to God, and also to train them in how to do that. Because if you haven't noticed, obedience is not natural. It's not our default mode. Our default mode is doing what we feel like doing, when we feel like doing it. Not like, drop what you're doing and do this. There's a resistance in us. We're like, hold on. I'm busy. I'm playing with this toy. I have a plan. And then your parent comes in and just changes that plan. And it doesn't feel right, especially when you're getting more independent. Thinking back to my childhood, uh, though I professed following Jesus from my youth, I can say it was very seldom my relation to God that was my primary motive in obeying my parents. Quite often it was something selfish. It was because I knew if I didn't obey, my life was going to be way more miserable and painful than it would be otherwise. So it was just better to deal with it, uh, be compliant with what was asked, because the alternative was far worse. I knew that disobedience would result in swift action. There would be the rod of correction, and that was something to be avoided at all costs. I think my fear of being in trouble with my parents was much more on my mind than my disobedience before God and how that displeased him. I don't know if, you, if this really hits you guys at all, but I was thinking about it going, yeah, it, it really wasn't about service to God at all. God wasn't, I knew it was right for me to follow my parents and to obey them, but quite often I would do things out of duty. I would be grumbling inside when I had to do this chore that I didn't feel like doing. And I wasn't joyful as unto the Lord. I can't recall a single time that I did a chore or a job around my house or I was not able to do what I wanted to do. And I was happy to do it because I knew that in obeying my parents, I was honoring God just like a missionary in the field who's been obedient to the call of God. That in obedience to my parents, I was serving God in a, in a profound way that he would reward Honestly, that didn't come into the picture much. Often, obedience was the price I was willing to pay to have a better shot at the life I wanted. It wasn't really about God at all. So young people today living under your parents' roof, do you see obedience to your parents as a primary way that you can honor God in your life? That's a big challenge. And even as adults, we're to honor our parents. Like we talked about last week, when you're married, your relationship to your parents changes because now there's that closeness being one with your spouse. So you're not obedient to your parents as you once were as a subject to them, but you're always to honor them, to hold them in high esteem and value, to value what they say, how they're feeling, where they're at, and how you can help them. 
And it says there, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. When you honor or highly value your parents, it comes with a promise of well done and even long life for those who obey in the Lord. So when you're doing it as unto him. Obeying this command isn't a promise that you're going to live to be 80 plus. Like, hey, if I do this, I'm going to have this result. Uh, Jesus, he always honored his father and mother and his father in heaven, and he lived to be 33-ish, right? So, but it's, it's saying that obedience to God and honor your parents, it lends to long life. It tends to life. And if you're in Christ, you have eternal life. So that's much more than life on the earth. But it also says that the wicked will not live out half their days. It says that in Psalm 55, verse 23. So the way that you treat your parents, it has an impact on the quality and the duration of your life on earth. Isn't that amazing? God, God honors that when we honor our parents as unto him. The promise was given under law, but that principle remains true. And so it's spoken of again in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, verse 4, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This was really a revolutionary concept in this day where the oldest man in the household, he had what was called patria potestas. And in Latin, that means absolute power or absolute control over every part of the house. So it's, it's really difficult. Like it was quite a, a, a shocking thing to think about how that would really look where you have a household and you have the, the, the patriarch, the old grandfather who calls the shots. His, he decides who his children marry, who they don't marry, the jobs they have. When they get a job, all money goes to him. He decides about all the property, what happens. He manages everything. And he even had power to execute his own child. He could adopt children or he could excommunicate them. He had total and absolute authority over every aspect of the house. And then to say, don't provoke your children to wrath. Think about how your kids feel. It was for the, because the responsibility in the Roman culture was a duty to the family. Duty to honor your ancestors duty to society, duty to increase wealth and value of the home, of this, this family. It wasn't about really the individuals and how they were feeling. Like, it's like, tough, this is good for us. I have to excommunicate you, or I have to adopt some of their kids, or you have to get this, you have to be in this profession. So that was dad's call in those days. Paul taught that dads are not to mold children in the way they deem best or the way that they were raised, but in the training and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. How can a father provoke his children? And there are many, many ways. I'm sure... All of us have been provoked in some sense, right? Stirred up, a little righteous indignation or just flat out mad because of something that was said or done that we thought was so unfair and wrong 
that we can even remember now, though it's been 20, 30, 40 years ago. I'll just trot a few out there just for drill. <laughs> Unrealistic expectations. Being critical, where you can do no right. Being hypocritical, saying one thing but doing another. Uh, by not being present, by not caring enough to be with the child. Provoking them when we're unloving towards other members of the family. When we're unloving to our wives or to other children. When we mock or ridicule, we're domineering. When we're the biggest, so we, we force our way upon others. Threatening. Those are the things that provoke and discourage kids. When we refuse to admit that we've been wrong and refuse to apologize. When no amount of effort is good enough, that's discouraging. And we provoke when our words are careless and we belittle and we offend and we don't care because we don't think we have to. So he's saying, don't provoke your kids. Train them in the admonition of the Lord. So parents, this is a call to both mom and dad, but especially dads, responsible to bring up all their children in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so looking at these two bits, training and admonition, training begins really when you are born again and you have a new life and a new heart and a new perspective that actually cares about people the way that Jesus cares for you. And before a child can even speak, to provide a good example of living out a life that's pleasing to God, that is a, a great way to be training a child because before they can speak, they're learning. They're picking up on what you're doing and what you're saying. When kids are kept accountable to established boundaries, those boundaries have been established, maybe even explained. You've talked about them and the consequences for transgressing them, and then you follow through and providing that example and support throughout that. It's important to keep your word, to do as you say, to warn but never threaten. See, a threat is empty. A threat you don't ever have to act on. And if you threat enough, it just has no power. But a warning, one, one warning. And when they're of age, you don't even need to warn anymore. They know. Um, and they shouldn't be permitted... Um, two or two and a half or three seconds of disobedience as you're counting, they should, the first time you say something, you should enforce that. So you give them those boundaries and you stick to it. And that's tough. It's tough to be consistent when you're not feeling up to it. And it's a challenge to us to love like that, to be consistent with them like God's consistent in his word. This word training, from Greek, it means education by, by implication, disciplinary correction, chastening instruction, or to nurture. Kids need more than the provision of clothes and food and a home. They need uh, spiritual guidance. They need love and nurturing. And they need knowledge that's gained by seeing Christianity in action where they see people loving one another and apologizing when they've done the wrong thing and actually wanting to change and being open and honest with one another. And teaching the children, it should be personal as well as corporate. Listen to what God said in the family life in Deuteronomy 6, 
verses 4 through 7. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So the word of God being in your heart, loving God, obeying God, and then talking about God, and the way that he's impacting your life when you're walking down the road, you're sitting at the table, or even before going to bed, that you would be speaking about uh, the words of the Lord. Now, nurturing kids, it's not just reciting verses or singing songs or going to church. It's, it's loving God and living a life that's in obedience to the word, putting it into practice. Seeking to please God, that ought to undergird the boundaries we set for kids and also the way that we enforce them. The rod of correction, it will drive foolishness from the hearts of kids. Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Chastening is never to inflict pain to get back at somebody, to take revenge, or to get even because you're embarrassed or there's been an offense and you think, well, they ought to be doing better, so I need to really ramp it up make sure they know that they've done the wrong thing. Uh, it's the aim to correct and restore. The word admonition, it's calling attention to mild rebuke or warning. So this speaks of not just physical boundaries and discipline, but also communication, speaking with your kids, rebuking if necessary, and also encouraging them, supporting them. We're not to nag or berate them, but to speak the truth. And if they won't hear the truth, well, then action beyond words may be required. And all fathers are going to stand before God, regardless of how their kids respond, if they've been faithful to do their part, to raise their children in that way. And uh, no amount of talking is going to change someone's heart, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And we can always talk to God who hears us, and he knows the, the interpersonal nuances there, and the challenges that, because that, if having kids, you know, it, it works on a lot of rough edges you have. You learn a lot about yourself, and you learn a, a lot about how wretched you are. Um, and, and, how, and also, in contrast to that, how great God's love is, and how faithful he is, and how gracious and kind he is, and how, how he is firm but loving at the same time. And that's a difficult balance to strike. So not being an authoritarian, being encouragers, setting a good example. And really, this, this works for all our relationships, that we should be a, a good example of Christianity, following Christ in action. We should be his faithful servants. And moving on to the next one, you'll see his masters and servants as well. Ephesians 6, 5, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. 
The word bondservant literally means slave. Dulos, slave. I saw an estimate that in Italy, it was, it's believed that one in three people were slaves. And throughout the Roman Empire, at its peak, one in five were slaves. So there were a lot of slaves, millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. The lowest class in society had no personal rights, being completely subservient for a lifetime to a master, most of the time not by choice. You would have been a prisoner of war. You might have been kidnapped and sold. And you were stripped completely of your family, your culture, your heritage, your lands. You had no rights. And you were disposable. Quoting an article, the average ancient Roman worker was riddled with arthritis, suffered broken bones, and was dead by 30 thanks to a diet of rotting grains and a lifetime of hard labor. They found skeletons, archaeologists have, that are 20, estimated to be 20 to 30 years old that have severely advanced arthritis because of the heavy chains that they were forced to wear all the time around their ankles and their legs and, and evidence of broken bones that hadn't set, but they had to keep working. When you think of that life, really a hopeless life, a life of toil, constantly to perhaps a very cruel and uncaring master. What hope Jesus offered those who had been exploited and abused and helpless. He offered them abundant life now and eternal life to look forward to. Imagine if you were a slave in that condition, in a chain gang, no hope of release, being beaten, and then reading these words in Galatians 3, 25 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. These are people who who had been totally cut off from their families. They weren't heirs of anything. They had no inheritance coming to them. But they said, if you're in Christ and you've put on Christ, you are now one with Christ. You, you have status that's been conferred upon you by the grace of God, and you are his, and he is yours. And these people had nothing, but they had Jesus. They had been stripped of all heritage, family, freedom, and dignity. They gained infinitely more than they had lost by entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who loved them, who gave himself for them. They continued, so after coming to Christ, they continued to be slaves. That didn't change. We might have an idea that when we come to Christ, our situation's going to get better. But sometimes it doesn't get better. It doesn't change. But God changes us within that context. In Roman culture, the rank and status of people was displayed in the clothing that you wore, the particular toga that you wore. It said something about you. People would look at you and just be able to, oh, he's this, or, oh, that's an important person over there, um, or that's a soldier. But having put on Christ, they were a new creation. They had been acquired by men for a season, but they were children of God. They had a father that they could still be in contact with. And they had a future that they could enjoy. 
not just bought with money, but with the blood of Jesus, because God loved them. They had not willingly chosen most of them to be slaves to their masters, but they had willingly chosen to be slaves of Jesus. And that impacted the way they served their earthly masters. Not like, hey man, you better set me free. I'm a child of the king. (laughs) They were a child of the king. But he said, as a child of the king, obey your masters in sincerity as to Christ. In a sense, it's like when their master said, hey, go out there, wash and feed the mules. It was Jesus asking them. Those were Jesus' mules out there that they were to be caring for and tending. And if Jesus had said something to them, they would have rushed to do it. And they would have maybe worked overtime without even just because of their love for Christ. And he's saying, serve your masters like that, like you would as if it was for me. It was a common practice of slave owners to dangle the carrot of potential freedom. And it was a cruel trick. Because the way that the the master would ensure these people with a lifetime of service kept working hard is you'd either use threats of violence, actual violence, or you would say, well, you know, if you keep putting in a good work, you, you might have a chance to make some extra money and be able to buy your freedom. Or maybe I'll just release you. The master could do that. But after a while, they realized that it wasn't happening. He's been saying this for 20 years He has no intention of letting us go. He is just trying to manipulate me to get more work out of me. So when you figured that out as a slave, guess what you did? The bare minimum. You're like, forget that. I'm not investing my life in this guy's stuff. When he's around, sure, I'll put on a good show. I'll do some eye service, but it won't be sincere. I won't put my whole heart into it. He doesn't deserve that. Nobody deserves this life that I've been dealt And undoubtedly, many slaves became embittered and resentful, and they hated their master because he was cruel and ruthless, and he had killed other servants, and and there was no hope. There was no getting away. He had total right to do anything. If you could kill your own kid under law, what could you do to a slave who had no rights? They had ways of sticking it to the man, passive-aggressive sabotage, uh, undermining deliberately, but now as having a new master, they were to deal with their old master in a different way because they were now slaves of Christ, who was really their master's master. How different the family, the workplace, and the world would be if Christians honored the authority that God has set over us in sincerity. I was reminded of a conversation I had with a foreman probably 20 years ago. I felt a little old thinking about that. Oh, wow, that was, that was quite a while. Um, he, he told me, uh, we were talking shop, and he said he had been wor- years ago I was working out of town and was cheated out of some per diem. So he had, he, he had worked out of town, and if you worked outside the, the radius, then you were entitled to $40 extra per day. And because he was working a full week, he had worked long, straight time, the first four days. But then he, he cut out early on Friday because he had done his 40 hours and he wanted to get home. Okay? Seems like a pretty fair deal. But they go, oh, you only worked half a day on Friday. So we're only giving you half your per diem. 
Well, that did not sit well with my friend, and he was embittered over it. Instead of filing a grievance with a union or talking to his boss, he handled it his own way. He never forgot that 20 bucks. He's like, Ben, when it, when it gets close to quitting time on a Friday or any other day, I just think back about that 20 bucks they stiffed me, and I can justify leaving early real easy. Man, they, I've been paying on that 20 bucks for a long time. And he, and he told me this grinning. He's like, they have been paying, man. They cheated me, but boy, I'm getting them. I'm getting them good. Taking extra, leaving early, taking an extra long break, leaving a job undone. It was just a way to get back for that 20 bucks. The 20 bucks that, it was just 20 bucks, but he was sending a message. He felt he had been mistreated. Now imagine how these slaves must have felt. How they had been mistreated. How they had been ripped from their life and their lands and their future and their kids and possibly their spouse. And then being subjected to that day after day. It's just shocking. If they should feel like that, to serve a cruel dictator as unto him. That was the command. Insincerity. So for us, we shouldn't grudgingly pay our taxes or vote or mow the lawn or push back against parental authority because we serve Jesus. He's the one that we're doing this for. It's not because we have to. We willingly choose to do it because Jesus has asked us to. He's saying honor those in authority. Right? Obey your masters, servants. And what's so incredible is that when you do something as unto the Lord, whether it's paying your taxes or mowing the lawn or doing a chore, done unto the Lord, he receives it as unto him and he rewards you accordingly like it was done unto him. And that's amazing that you, when you're doing your homework as unto the Lord, God rewards you, even if your professor gives you a crummy mark for it. Even if you don't pass the test, but you put in effort, it's unto the Lord. He rewards you for the, the chores around the house that are just a drudgery, the preparing of meals and the cleaning up. And you go, man, when does this end? It just keeps dragging on and on. When we do those household things as unto the Lord, it's the same as if you were in Africa on a mission trip experiencing those things in obedience. It's like, so you're, you're away from your family and you, you don't have clean water available and the, the things that you're accustomed to are foreign. They're gone. But it was unto him. And that's the key. So it's the motive in doing it. When you offer to help someone who's treated you poorly, just as if you were volunteering to help Jesus, God rewards you with good things. So often we tap into our hate or bitterness or resentment to motivate us to do or not do something. Instead, we ought to realize we are servants of the king. We are willingly, we've willingly become bondservants, a lifetime of servitude to our Savior who loves us, who's given us everything. That he is the one who motivates us. Now I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say that there were slaves in the church in Ephesus who would have rather gone skydiving without a parachute 
than to be obedient to their masters in sincerity. They're like, heck no. No way. They justify giving eye service. But this is the question. Are we willing to serve as unto the Lord? That person that's difficult, the one, the, the, the boss who has been unreasonable, the one who's been unfair, the one who seems to benefit when we're the ones who are sweating it out and our job is on the line, our neck is on the line, and yet we continue to give, not just to save our jobs or to look good in front of men, but as unto the Lord. Your job and career, do you work as unto the Lord? Your schoolwork and assessments, do you do them as unto the Lord? Children, do you honor your parents and obey them as to the Lord? And parents, are you raising your children in the training and admonition of the Lord? Not to boost your pride or even for their sakes, but for Him. Ephesians 6, 9. And you, masters... Do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your, your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The church from the beginning, it was a mix of ethnicities and social groups. It really brought people together who never would have mixed with one another. When you have, can you imagine a master and a slave going to the same church? That's wild. The men, the women, the children, all these different places in society, but they're all together and they're all one in Christ. There were Jews and Gentiles in the church. There were slaves and there were masters. In many cases, slaves remained slaves and masters remained masters. We might have this romantic notion that when you were a master and you became a Christian, uh, because you're a Christian now, it's forbidden to have slaves. That's not the case. And so they maintained their position in society. They didn't just automatically change everything. Masters had absolute authority under their slaves. They were their property. But he says, masters, I've got something for you. You do the same things to them. What I've just told the bond servants to do to you, you're to do to them. And they must have went like, huh? How could I possibly keep control how could we get anything done? You just think about like all the ways that I'm used to motivating people and the way that I keep them in line and I'm kind of proud of the way I keep them in line and now you're telling me I need to love them and I need to serve them? Like, come on. With goodwill, I'm to do service for my servants, for my slaves? Like, I paid for them. That's not what they're supposed to do. I'm supposed to provide an environment of compassion and love and care, support, treating them as if I would treat Christ if he came into my house as a guest. That's how I'm to treat my slave. It was just, it must have been so radical for him to say this. Remembering back to Exodus, remember how Pharaoh was a bit annoyed when, well, annoyed is putting it lightly. He's pretty angry when uh, Moses and kept giving God's message of, let my people go. And he's like, no, I'm not letting them go. And then after they kept saying this, he told the men, he said, he told his foreman, 
Don't give them any straw. Make them get their own straw. Don't reduce their quota. So we're not going to give them the raw materials, but they have to produce just as much brick as when we were giving them the raw materials. Something that was impossible and they couldn't do. And it gave them an easy excuse just to beat them up. And so they, they uh, made an example of the people who weren't getting the job done brutally. It says he ruled the Hebrews with vigor. That word vigor, it means to break apart fracture, severity, cruelty. It was cruel how he ruled them. And then on top of that, he says, throw all their male children in the river. You know, they've just got too much time on their hands. They're not at all on task. We're going to get them on task. Make sure that we keep their numbers down. Keep them afraid and weak. A master who had become a Christian, he now had a master himself, a new master who is Christ. And he was to love his slaves just like Jesus loves him. Totally radical. And he says, give up threatening, guys. You have a master in heaven. He doesn't show partiality. They were to quit menacing. Because of God's grace and power, I have no doubt that when masters put into practice what is spoken here, the love of Christ came through them, and the slaves saw the transformation in their masters, that many of them came to Christ. Many of them were shocked by the different countenance of their masters. Being subject to Christ does not mean that things will be easy. It'll never be easy for our, our flesh to submit to God. But that's something that it helps to know that's what he requires from us. Philemon, he was a kind and loving master towards all. He was a guy that had the church meeting in his house. He was kind to his slaves. And he was repaid with evil when one of his slaves just ran away. And when a slave ran away, being your property, he was a liability. And you had every right to punish him however you wanted. You could set an example by killing him. You could just maim him. You could... You could do whatever. I mean, just any base thing you could do. Because you had to send a message to the other slaves, right? This is the way the world works. It, it rules through fear. But that wasn't to be their motive anymore. So Philemon, that's a letter that Paul wrote to the man of the same name, a Christian slave owner. In chains, this is the background, Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. And Onesimus was a runaway slave of Philemon's who came to Christ. So Paul at one point had brought Philemon to the Lord. And then while he's in chains, Onesimus ran away and Paul brings him to the Lord. But since Onesimus was a runaway slave, his job as a slave was to obey his master. And so Paul sent him back with the letter of Philemon that we have in our Bibles. So that's the letter that he sent with this slave who's going back to his master. And he was to accept him as a brother in the flesh and in Christ. On that level, why don't you turn to Philemon 1, starting in verse 10.
Philemon, starting in verse 10. After a lengthy introduction, Paul gets to the middle or the point of his letter. He says, I appeal to you for my, for my son Anismus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf you might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul saw the redeeming hand of God upon this situation, that Onesimus had run away, but he had come to Christ, and now being a new creation, he who was once unprofitable, and that's what his name meant, was profitable, he was unprofitable, but now he had actually become profitable. And Paul said, I would love to keep him here with me, but since he is your servant, he must return to you. So receive him as my heart. Receive him like I am coming into your house as a, as a brother, a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So having God as our father and our master totally changes the way that we're to see other people. As followers of Christ, we are anismus in this passage. We're the ones who run away. We're the ones who shirk our responsibilities. But because we have a master in heaven, we're to return to him. We're to return to him uh, in obeying our parents, in nurturing our children, in training them in being obedient to those whom God has placed in authority with gladness, with receiving those who may be your employee, who, who are not getting the job done, but you're to love them as Christ loves you, to do service unto them, to think about their well-being above the bottom line, knowing it's Jesus who will reward you. Our rewards come from him. So may our faith in Christ May it cease to be theoretical in our relationships. Remembering the words of our master Jesus when he said, Inasmuch you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me, and we're rewarded accordingly. And then he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. And we can enter into that joy today. I just want to encourage you guys. Jesus knows about the 20 bucks. Jesus knows about how other people have run from their responsibilities. You've been the Philemon, and they've been the Onismus. They have run off. And he also knows your fear of heights when you're at, on a ladder or at 4,000 meters. But you're in tandem with him, and he will help you when you trust him. Would you trust him enough to obey him in the area of relationships, in knowing that he is your master, he is your father, and you serve him. You're not alone. You are loved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for the many relationships that we have in our lives. Thank you for the way that you use other people to bless us, to encourage us, to help us follow you more closely. 
Thank you for the interaction we see here between Paul and the people of Ephesus and also Philemon and Onismus, how Paul brought them back together. And help us to be those, Lord, who are subject to you, knowing that it's you who rewards us, that we wouldn't be those who give eye service, but in sincerity, in obedience to you. Thank you that you allow us in maybe mundane tasks, even at our jobs, to do so for heavenly reward because you see what we endure. You know our hearts and the things that are tough for us. And uh, thank you that you give us the faith to obey. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just continue to strengthen us as we seek to follow you, as we want to give honor and glory to you, and that you would, you would indeed be magnified in our lives through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's Jesus' name we pray. Amen.